Well, hello everybody, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and this week I'm bringing in George Kusileos to talk about sports massage. Now, George has been in practice since 1978 and has worked with Olympic teams in 1996 and in 2004. He has taught around the world, but calls Tallahassee, Florida his home. And like a number of my previous guests, George is in the Massage Hall of Fame and has really dedicated a great deal of his life to the industry. Now, this includes being vice president of the Massage Therapy Foundation, helping the NCBMT write bylaws and tests, and many other projects. So one of the projects in particular we're going to talk about is his involvement in XPE Sports, which for you sports massage fans out there should be very interesting. And one of the most pressing subjects that I wanted to cover in general with George was how to collaborate effectively with a team of healthcare providers in the sports context. So lots of times, you know, we get isolated as body workers. So I thought it would be useful to draw out some helpful tips from someone who spends most of his time in the context of a multidisciplinary healthcare team. Now, I really enjoyed my conversation with George, and all there were some internet blips, and occasionally you will hear his dogs bark in the background. Overall, he was exceptionally articulate and precise. So I give you my conversation with George Kusileos. All right, George, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's an honor to have you here to have this conversation with me. I've I've had a number of different modalities and people who have experts in their field, and and this is my first time really honing in on sports massage and mm-hmm. the effect and the work that that we do there. So, uh, just to set up the conversation a little bit, uh, can you tell us a little bit how you got involved in body work originally, and then specifically working with athletes? Sure, uh, it was because of athletics that I got involved with body work. Um, I was 25 years old, some 43 years ago, uh, as a graduate student at Florida State University. I was also working uh, a full-time job at the university, uh, working internships for students in the criminology department who wanted to move into the area of counseling for drug uh, addiction. So I was doing that, plus taking graduate courses. But my real love and passion at the time was playing rugby. I had started playing when I was a student an undergraduate at the Harvard University. Uh, we didn't have spring training for uh, the football team back then, so many of us joined the rugby club. Um, that became, a, a, became a, a passion. I was happy when I came to Florida State to find out that rugby here was much more advanced than it was in the Ivy League at that time. So three years into a, a, a sort of graduate school, full-time job as a counselor and a, a teacher, and playing rugby, I had probably the worst injury I could have ever imagined, which was a partial rupture of two cervical discs. Um, the, the pain and numbness in my arm was excruciating. I started having headaches that I had never had before. I went to see the athletic trainer at Florida State University. He recommended that I see the orthopedic surgeon who immediately wanted to do surgery. He, he felt like it was bad enough um, and this was in 1975, so there were no MRIs, no CAT scans. It was only x-rays. And from what he could see, he felt that there had to be disc damage. Uh, I was anxious. I didn't, I didn't like the idea of having my neck cut into and not knowing what would be done. He talked about a laminectomy. I had no idea what that was at the time other than some form of fusion of one or more vertebrae. Uh, and it just frightened me. So I went back to the athletic trainer. I asked him if there was some 
physical rehab that I could do with him. And he recommended uh, neuromuscular therapy. And there was a, a young massage therapist here in Tallahassee who had just been trained in the Paul St. John method. Uh, I went to her several times and felt better almost immediately and became fascinated with what she knew and how she knew how to do it. Uh, started asking the kinds of questions I get, I guess led her to think that I needed to either become a massage therapist or at least study uh, anatomy and physiology. So my major, which was a combination of psychology and criminology, quickly changed into anatomy and physiology. Um, that took about two years of my life, from the time I was 25 to 27. And then I heard about a program in Gainesville, Florida. Back then, even though Florida had a state license, there were only two schools in the state. One was in Miami and one was in Gainesville. And the one in Gainesville had just been bought by uh, Benny Vaughn. And I'm not sure if you know who Benny is. He's become one of the worldwide leaders in sports massage and orthopedic massage. Uh, he had just started the school. I went down to meet him at Gainesville. It's about two and a half hours from, from uh, Tallahassee. So within a couple of weeks of meeting him, I started classes. Uh, this, this would have been in the spring of 1978. Uh, and immediately thought that this was my uh, future. Now, the other thing that happened because of my uh, massage therapist in Tallahassee, she introduced me to yoga. I had never stretched before as an athlete. I couldn't believe how I started to feel just from regular stretching. Um, my yoga instructor told me about rolfing. I had never heard of, of uh, that before. He actually brought me an article from a, I think it was Psychology Today, probably an article that was written in 19... 72, uh, and the whole issue was about body-oriented psychotherapy, and rolfing was one of the disciplines that they talked about in that magazine. I read it, uh, I became fascinated, and found a, a rolfer in Atlanta that I would drive to and see monthly. Atlanta's about four and a half hours. I would spend four and a half hours on the road, an hour and a half on the table, and then back in the car for four and a half hours. Uh, again, I was a graduate student, didn't have the money to spend the night in Atlanta, had to get back up home. But from the very first session of rolfing, I started to think, if I do become a massage therapist, that's the discipline that I want to learn. Um, fortunately, in the spring of 1978, when I started massage school, um, Bill Williams, who had been uh, an instructor at the Rolf Institute in Colorado, made an announcement he was opening the Rolf Institute of Florida in Gainesville the following fall, right around the time that I would graduate from massage school. So I went immediately from massage school into studying structural integration. That took up another six months of my uh, life. And uh, by the fall of 79, uh, I was out and about. And within three months, I was working in New York, working with ballet dancers, opera singers, and uh, musicians of all uh, types. And I had an offer to go to Germany and work with a, a psychiatrist who owned what we would now call a wellness clinic, what he called an integrated medical clinic, uh, and worked with him for three years as well as uh, the New York job for three years. So every eight weeks, I would travel back and forth between Munich and uh, New York City, did that for three years. So my first three years was as busy as I could have ever hoped for as a young therapist. And the only athletes I really was working with at that time were the, were the ballet dancers. And I, I remember thinking, I'm learning more from working with ballet than I am from all of these other clients coming on. Uh, when I finally came back to Tallahassee and uh, settled here and got uh, married, my first clients were former members of the rugby team. So I started working with rugby athletes, 
Some of them had been either track athletes or football athletes. So a lot of chronic older injuries that I got to work with early on. Uh, and within a few years, uh, I started to teach workshops in myofascial therapy and structural body work around the state of Florida on behalf of the SOMA Institute, which was the school that I went to to learn structural integration. Um, and by 1990, my wife and I decided that all this travel, while it was good in, in helping me create a, a business plan, really wasn't good for raising a, a family. So in 1990, we opened up the CORE Institute here in Tallahassee both as an entry-level school and as it advanced the training in myofascial therapy, sports body work, uh, and a structural integration. Now, I say sports body work because the plan that I always had was to use the myofascial techniques that really were sort of either intermediate or entry-level structural integration protocols on athletes as a way of improving both structure and function. So I am different than most sports massage therapists who probably base their original treatment plan and techniques on Swedish massage. Uh, mine was very different. It was a much slower, much more friction-based uh, myofascial therapy uh, uh, protocol, and we were looking at how can we improve structure and abilities of, uh, of uh, athletes, many of whom were in sports that were dominant one-sided sports. It became easier in the early 90s when we started meeting uh, local athletes who were swimmers or a, or a gymnast who had a, a body that was much more balanced, they were more ambidextrous. Uh, and that to me was really fascinating how different sports can create different structural anomalies. Um, we were very lucky here in Tallahassee that we were the only school of massage therapy. We were successful right away. Uh, and in 1994, the British Olympic team decided to hold its training during uh, the summers in Tallahassee to get their athletes ready for the heat and humidity of the 96 Olympics, which were in Atlanta. So from, from two years out, we were working with uh, Olympic athletes uh, every summer. And that really fulfilled uh, sort of the yearning that I had, had when I first became a massage therapist to see how this would help athletes who were either in training or in competition. I'm curious about this, the, you know, the sports that have a more balanced effect on how athletes develop versus the asymmetrical imbalance, as, you would, as you'd right. put it. it is there a general difference in the approach? So you said you, you were working with all these asymmetries and then you worked with a bunch of balanced athletes. What was the, that, that, that process of, of learning those two different body types for you? Well, when I first learned structural integration from Bill Williams, he used to talk about Ida Rolf's term for the average person. She called it the typical random body. And that typical random body had uh, a, a disorganization that followed pretty general guidelines that one ilium, at least at the ASIS, was more anterior and or inferior compared to the other. So there already was a rotation in the pelvis, which created a rotation in the lumbar spine, which created one leg seemingly acting longer than the other leg, created perhaps uh, excessive or hyper uh, lordotic curvature, um, and could also create an imbalance in the shoulders the thorax, uh, the cervical column, even into the head. With this plan in mind or with this thought in mind, I thought everyone was like that until I started meeting athletes who were more balanced. And some of the earlier ones, like I said, came from gymnastics and swimming, where the demand on both sides of the body is uh, equal. The abilities on both sides, the range of motion on both sides is much more balanced than it was on uh, other athletes. 
Uh, a good example of that is just this last year, we started working with uh, the sports medicine staff of the Washington Nationals, uh, the baseball club in Washington, D.C. And they kept talking to me about the rotational patterns of baseball, either in throwing or in hitting the ball, and how much more work they have to do to try to bring that body back into balance after not just months of every season, but year upon year upon year. And some of these athletes playing uh, baseball nine to 10 months out of the year since they were nine or 10 years old. Um, so working with those patterns, trying to bring better balance to them and trying to, to get every athlete to understand that the more ambidextrous they could become, the better they would be, even if their sport demanded one side being more dominant than the other. Hmm. So do you find that educating your clients or your athletes is an important piece of that, that battle? It's not just the, 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 the manual manipulation you do, but also the educational element? It's, it's a huge piece. We started working with Florida State University football team eight years ago. And the first two years, we spent a lot of time each hour that we were there giving some basic anatomy lessons for all of these athletes. And not just what muscle is this, but what is the function of this muscular group that we're working on? What is the corresponding muscular group that balances that function, whether it's a lateral movement or uh, a, um, a uh, posterior to superior movement, all of these different movements that they were creating in uh, football. We could say, this is why we're not just working on the muscles that hurt you, but why we're working on uh, muscles that perhaps are either in overuse or, or chronically uh, used in one movement rather than another. So getting that education, and, and again, early on in structural integration, we were told you're not just therapists, you're somatic educators. You have to teach basic anatomy, basic movement, basic form and function, get people to understand about what they can do in terms of homework to improve or to maintain themselves in a more optimal uh, optimal alignment. I was taught early on a five-point standing awareness exercise that I teach every athlete, every client at the very beginning of the work, and I use it as a way to have them judge pre and post session how they feel. It's an isometric uh, exercise that's done while uh, standing that demands that their feet and legs are straight ahead, demands that there is a minimal rotation to the pelvis, so in a more neutral position, elevates the sternum, pulls the arms down to the side, and then lengthens the posterior cervical column. And they hold it in an isometric form for 15 seconds or three full breaths. Then they pause for one breath, repeat it a second time, and then a third time. So it's a one-minute awareness exercise that if clients do it daily, they're going to understand exactly how their body is moving towards balance. Um, again, getting athletes to do it, even athletes who are training hours and hours every day, to include this one extra minute is the struggle. Uh, but that's what we're doing in the combine camps, and I'm working now with uh, XPE Sports, working with uh, athletes trying to get into the NFL, and we even use it in the summer where we're doing work during the offseason with NFL athletes. Yeah, so I was going to ask, you're about to enter this period where you're going to help run a program where NFL prospects train for their combine. Can you exactly. tell Can you tell my listeners a little bit about what a combine is, for those of us who don't know sure. what that is, and then how you're involved in that lead-up? The uh, NFL holds a tryout, if you will. Uh, it's called a combine. It's held every early March for five days in Indianapolis at the indoor stadium of the Indianapolis Colts. It's in connection with a hotel conference center. So every NFL team is represented with their coaches, with their uh, uh, athletic trainers, with their uh, orthopedic 
surgeons. There's actually more MRIs done on the first day than is done in Indianapolis for the next several months with all the athletes that come in. They invite 300 athletes who are eligible for the draft. There's probably 1,000 athletes who want to get into the NFL every year, but these top 300 are invited. And around the country at 10 or more training facilities, uh, 30 to 40 of these athletes will train for eight weeks in January and February to prepare themselves for the combine. They're going to be tested in numerous ways. Uh, the ways that most people have heard about, for instance, for speed, they are tested in how fast they can run the 40-yard dash. So the 40-yard dash time is is probably the most um, important one time that they will have compared to all the other ways that they're being measured. It's the most important because the NFL is now dominated by speed. If everything else is equal in an athlete, the athlete that, that is uh, faster is going to get a higher, higher draft choice, which means a larger contract. Uh, they're going to be tested on the bench press. They have to bench press 225 pounds, and that's no matter whether they weigh 185 pounds or 325 pounds. Each of them will have to uh, bench press 225 as many times in a row as they can without failing. So uh, it could be 15 times for some of the smaller athletes. It could be as much as 30 or 40 times for some of the stronger or larger athletes. Uh, they will have position skills that they have to run. If they're a running back, there are certain skills that the uh, NFL will run them through to see how they do on those. They will have uh, a vertical jump, uh, a standing broad jump um, to, to uh, check for both explosiveness and, uh, and uh, power. Um, they will do a number of other skill tests, but they're also put through a psychological exam. They're put through interviews with the uh, general managers and uh, coaches of many of the teams who might be interested. Complete medical history, of course, is taken. And like I said, on the first day, more MRIs are uh, done in Indianapolis than probably any other month of the year in the uh, city. They rent every MRI machine within 50 miles of Indianapolis to make sure they know as much about these athletes' health as they so how are you involved in this this training, this pre-combine training regimen? And this is the most interesting part for me because it's a matter of history and co a coincidence. When we met the British Olympic team here in Tallahassee in 94, I made the offer, since I owned the school at that time, to provide massage therapy for all of their athletes for free while they were training at Florida State University every summer. That was through the 96. So we'd have two summers of 95 and 96, where we'd have anywhere from 200 to 300 athletes here training at the same time, up to six weeks at a time. And we would have a clinic for them every afternoon of massage therapists from my school coming in to see them. Well, they accepted all of that, except for one thing. They said, we are fine with what you're offering, but we want experienced, skilled massage therapists, much like what we find at world championships or Olympics. So I had to start recruiting not only my graduates, but therapists from all over the country who were willing to come spend one week with me during the summer, train with me in the morning in the myofascial therapy form that we were using with athletes at that time. It's called core myofascial therapy. And then work on the athletes late afternoon and early evening. And we were overwhelmed with a response. We brought in 25 new therapists every week for six weeks, both in the summer of 95 and 96. So that was the beginning of this, how do you work education in with a great clinical experience working with some of the best athletes in the world?
the 96 Olympics really opened up because of Benny Vaughn organizing the Olympics. I was one of a couple of people that he asked to help him organize what are the priorities, uh, how many therapists do we need, what do their skill sets need to be, what kind of training do we need to give them once they arrive so that they're ready for this experience of working with up to 10,000 athletes during the, the 17 days of the Olympics and the two weeks of the Paralympics. So we had a little bit of, of, uh, of an understanding of what we were looking for, and I was able to find uh, a lot of massage therapists willing to come here to work with athletes who weren't at the Olympics yet, but were in training to be at the Olympics the next, uh, uh, the next year. So if we can speed that up until three or four years ago, four years ago, because of the athletes I work with at Florida State, I'm interested in the combine and in the NFL draft. Many of my athletes are now in the NFL that I worked with here at FSU. And I'm watching the draft, and they have a little five-minute special on combine training, and they highlighted who was supposed to be the top defensive pick in that year's draft, a, a, a young man named Shane Ray, who had played uh, defensive line. He was a defensive end for Missouri, and he was the top defensive player of the year. They thought he would be the third pick in the draft after Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota. I'm watching him being interviewed or being, he's in a discussion with his trainer, a man named Tony Villani, who owns XPE Sports in Boca Raton, and they're talking about his turf toe. He had an injury during the season that was inhibiting him to train well and to run as fast as he could in the 40. And it was, this was at the combine in, at the end of February, early March. And, and they were concerned about him running and saying, let's not run today. Let's wait for your pro day in two weeks. You'll be in much better condition at that time. You'll be able to push off your foot, get more a plantar flexion through the a big toe. And so the decision was made not to run him. In the background of that interview, I see a young man doing massage work on another athlete, and he turns his head just one moment for me to recognize him as one of my students 20 years earlier at the British Olympic Camps that I ran in Tallahassee in 95. So I called him up the next day. I said, were you at the Combine recently? He says, yeah, how do you know? I said, well, I saw this video yesterday of Shane Ray and Tony Villani, and you were in the background. He says, yeah, I worked with uh, Tony here in Boca, I said, tell me about what you do. He told me about, he said, George, whenever you're in South Florida, come and visit. I want to introduce you to Tony Bellani. He said, you were my mentor. He's now my uh, mentor. I'd love for you two to meet. So uh, a couple months later, I went down to South Florida where I have family, went by to visit him. We had, we had dinner together with our uh, wives and made a decision that night that we should try to recreate that camp-like experience during the eight weeks of his combine training, bringing in new therapists every week. That's what we've been doing now for three years. How many massage therapists are you bringing in each week? Is it still 25? No, no. Because we have a smaller number of athletes, we only have 30 athletes there in the training, I bring in six therapists each week. Six therapists each week. And is the regimen still the same where in the morning they have classes and they learn exactly. and then they apply them in the afternoon? Exactly. They start with me at 8 in the morning on a Monday morning. We, we go until 1 o'clock. I give them an hour lunch break. And from two to five, they're working on these athletes. Hmm. When working with athletes, oftentimes you have to collaborate with other healthcare professionals. And I'm assuming the right. same is true in these, in these training uh, weeks. So when you're talking and when you're teaching these massage therapists, uh, what are some of the ways you teach them to collaborate effectively with other healthcare practitioners? To give you an, an example, the sports medicine team that 
surrounds XBE Sports during the combine training includes a sports chiropractor, a physical therapist, a nutritionist, an acupuncturist, usually a flexologist, somebody who specializes in stretching. Sometimes it's a person from Hatha Yoga. Sometimes it's a person who simply has taken active isolated stretching, the, the work that was done by uh, Aaron Maddies 20 or 30 years ago and has developed it for these larger mesomorphic athletes, um, and now a massage therapy team. Tony has always believed in massage therapy, but only had one or two people that would help out, not six at a time. So we work in collaboration with these other uh, therapists and practitioners. Um, Kevin Christie, who was our team uh, chiropractor, uh, has been with uh, Tony now for eight or nine years, worked with uh, uh, the golf tour for a good number of years. So has been involved in sports, does ART, does uh, the Graston method, has his offices right in Boca. So if, if athletes need more than what he can do on site, he brings them there at the end of the day. And he sort of is our, our, uh, our, our director of sports medicine. So we meet regularly. We uh, talk about athletes who are coming in with injuries or athletes who are developing some uh, overuse injuries because of the kind of training that we're doing. Remember, we're not doing just the football training. We're mainly doing Olympic speed training. Tony uses uh, the formula of stride length times stride frequency times leg and foot power. Uh, it's an old Olympic formula of how you develop better speed. So we have them running on what we call the razor's edge. And we're not allowing them to use the support that they had when they played football. Many of them are used to having their ankles taped in a fixed position before every practice, before every game. We're not letting them do that. We're trying to create more mobility in the ankle joint, which is a mobility joint. We're trying to get an, an, an improvement of strength in their full legs, but especially the quadricep, hamstring, uh, iliotibial band, uh, and into the, the adductors, because it's not just running ahead. They have to do a lot of side-to-side, -side, what are called cone drills, where they have to move to the right, immediately cut back to the left and do that a various number of times at a high velocity with a lot of power. So we see a lot of exercise or training related injuries during the eight weeks that we have to get on top of right away to make sure they don't become either chronic injuries or long-standing injuries. We have to, we have to deal with them immediately. So we're constantly meeting in as, as, as a part of a sports medicine team. The most important thing to understand is what the skills of each individual on that team has and how they can interplay, how there are times when the myofascial therapy might be the most appropriate treatment. Other times it might be acupuncture, it might be the corrective exercises that the physical therapist is uh, doing, or it could be laser work or um, uh, uh, the ART that our, our chiropractor does, or even traditional chiropractic uh, uh, adjustments might be more beneficial. Usually it's a combination of two or three of those, but we just have to figure out as a team, what's the right timing for each of these modalities? How sh should they help each other out? For instance, the chiropractor believes that the myofascial therapy really helps him adjust better. So we do the myofascial therapy first. He'll usually see the athletes after they've seen us do whatever spinal adjustments need to be done. And so when you have these conversations where you figure out the treatment plan, you said is there a direct the, the chiropractor is the director of it? So it's 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 a, a meeting where there's input given but one person is making a final call? That, that is true. Now, he has a couple of outside people that he relies on. We have uh, an orthopedic surgeon and a neurologist that we have worked with because some of these athletes are coming in with orthopedic issues. 
that existed during their college career. Some of them have already had ACL injuries and uh, surgeries. Many of them have had both either lumbar or cervical disc surgeries. So we have to know what their history is, and he's sort of the holder of all of the medical information about each of these athletes. There are times we have to reorder uh, MRIs even during the training because of injuries that are not responding that we want to find out more about. Um, uh, there's a, a number of labrum tears that were either misdiagnosed or, or there was no diagnosis that happened back during the season that we're now having to deal with now before they go to the combine or to the pro day. Hmm. So we have to have one person that's sort of at the point on all of this, but he relies on all of us to give our uh, input and to try to blend uh, the services that we can uh, in an integrated way as much as possible. So when when offering your input as a massage therapist, I'm trying to view this as, as body workers collaborating with healthcare professionals, what are some of the techniques and tricks that you uh, and tips that you offer your massage therapist and how to collaborate, how to offer your input so that it is uh, both received well but also a part of the collaborative process? Especially dealing with athletes who are working at such a, an accelerated level, I teach them that the best thing that they can do is to ask a lot of questions in these in these uh, meetings. Uh, for instance, if they're talking about an athlete who has some issue with the lumbar spine, I want to find out, do others in the room feel like there's too much hyperlordosis in this athlete's body? Would it be helpful if we start utilizing techniques that improves uh, lengthening the lumbar spine? Um, a lot of it is in mobility versus uh, immobility, sometimes hypermobility. What can we do to these joints that seem to be lacking in mobility or need to have an improved range of motion? Can we apply more pressure, more specific techniques to those areas without having a negative effect on the skills that those athletes are still learning? Hmm. In the Olympics, this is even more critical. Here I know I've got eight weeks of working with athletes before they have to perform. In the Olympics, they're coming there, you're working on them, they may have to perform the next day. So you really have to be more cautious you have to hold back on the amount of pressure, the amount of uh, force, or the amount of structural change that you're trying to make at the Olympic level during the Olympics than you would in an Olympic training camp months before. This is like an Olympic training camp that we're working with them with. But then we take a number of therapists up to Indianapolis, and we're working on those athletes during the combine itself. Every night there, they are getting by. That's where we have to be cautious is in that last week to the event itself. We have to pull back and do something that's more restorative, more for recovery, and less about structural change. Yeah. Well, I'm, the thing I'm picking up around the collaborative nature when working with the healthcare team is you mentioned asking questions. And it's not necessarily inputting what you think, but also engaging in conversation to ideate and 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 help start the discussion so that there is more of a give and a take and less of a, I put my thought out, you put your thought out, and we just hash it out. Right, exactly. We, ha we have athletes who will come in with um, uh, a labrum issue in one of the shoulder or, or in one of the hips. And so we want to ask all the questions about how detrimental versus how beneficial will it be if I do deeper range of motion in that, in that shoulder or a hip joint at this time compared to the night before the combo. Mm -hmm. So again, we have some time to work out a plan and that, that plan has to be approved by everyone in the room. But the top person is still our uh, team chiropractor. He is still at the, 
at the head of the medical uh, totem pole. Uh, but but he understands that that the rest of us are trying to to understand what's the best thing that we can do for this athlete in the moment. And sometimes it's letting the athlete rest. And, and not all of us are ready to admit that. But these athletes are working at a level. I have never seen athletes train at a level of explosion, at a level of intensity um, like they do for the combine training. And I've worked with Florida State, like I said, for eight years. I've worked with Olympic athletes since 1996. I was the head of the Olympic sports massage team in 2004 in Athens, and I trained most of the therapists for the 2012 team in London. So I know a little bit about Olympics, but I know more about how to treat athletes at an event versus that heavy training. We did get some of that with the British Olympic team. That was very helpful. But these three years in working with the combine athletes has been the most informative of my career. Probably the most important thing that's ever happened to me is to realize that we really need to be as, as cautious in their heavy training as we are at the Olympics. And yet we still have room to push an athlete in a certain direction as long as that athlete and the whole rest of the sports medicine team agrees that that's the direction we need to move in. So the athlete is always involved in this. And remember, we're not just working with the athlete. Their agent is there often. Their agent is paying for all the services that are being uh, given to that athlete, whether it's uh, the training, whether it's uh, it's uh, the medical work, his, uh, his um, accommodations, his, his food, everything is being taken care of by a professional agent that is hoping this athlete signs a sizable contract so he can start getting paid. So we got to make the agent happy also. <laughs> and sometimes mom and dad show up and they want to see what their son is doing in the, in the uh, training. So there's that other sort of psychological, emotional, familial issues that have to be handled. Uh, one of the largest athletes I've ever worked on was at the camp three years ago. He was six foot seven, 360 pounds. His parents came in to visit and we knew that they were coming in. I'm thinking, my God, this, this is a huge giant of a man. His parents, the mother was five foot, the father was five four. Whoa. And so the first question I asked was, how many children do you have? And they say that, uh, that this young man we're working with was our 12th child. And then I asked, how many of them achieved his size? They said, none of them. He is, he is the unique one in the family to become this big. There was an uncle who was 5'10". That was the biggest person on either side of the family. So we, we had to make them feel comfortable. We had to make ourselves uh, approachable so we would make them feel like their son was in good uh, hands. Uh, and I'm not sure why I'm rambling about this, except to say that moms and dads who show up, especially unannounced, have to be treated with kid gloves. Because even though the agent has all this money invested, mom and dad have a lifetime invested in this uh, child. They want to know that their child is in good hands. And for many of them, these are still babies. These are still children compared to what we see them as, as young men ready to enter the professional uh, field of football. Well, this it brings me back to a point that I've, I've reached in a number of these interviews I've done with the, the, the podcast, where it's also not just about treating the injury. It's about treating the person. Because it's, there, is, there is a human being on your table, and that human being has family and expectations and the, their own psychological processes they're working with. And, and if that's ignored, that's, that's doing them a, a huge disservice. Yeah. What I do when I see the list of athletes we're going to be working with is I do some background work and find out as much about them, both as athletes and if there's some stories that have been written that are online about them as individuals. And I found out that one of our athletes has an older brother who's severely autistic 
and that this younger brother is really taking care of. He is his uh, caretaker. So just having that, that knowledge gives me a better sense of what this person is like, what he's going through. He knows that making it into the NFL is not just going to help him. It's going to help his family, especially his older brother. I have to, I have to respect that. Uh, I don't usually bring things like that up, but I let them know that I, I certainly understand that, that this is bigger than just playing the sport. And uh, for many of these young men, they, they, many of our, our, uh, our athletes come from very poor backgrounds. Uh, we've had a few that come from very wealthy families, and it's always interesting to sort of look at how they train and what their attitude is about life. Usually they're a little bit more carefree uh, the more money is in the back pocket. But we had one athlete whose who's, uh, family, was whose uh, grandfather is one of the most famous athletes in the world from the 1950s and 60s, and money is not an issue. So his level of training or his dedication during the combine training may have been different, but we're not going to judge him on that. He's still made it to the NFL. He's playing well, but he has a different background. The urgency wasn't quite there for him as it was for other athletes. Yeah, and that also brings up a piece where, you know, learning about, for instance, that athlete who has the autistic brother, uh, yeah. it also, that changes their psychology in terms of how they grow up and their responsibility. And that's a that's a person who might not be as forthcoming with the the extent of a particular injury because they, right. there's, they, they've, they've lived their life in the caretaker role where they have to be the one where everything is okay because they're right. in the caretaking role. So that right. it's, all of these things play into what is going on with this person, not only physically, but psychologically and emotionally. We were warned when we started working with the Florida State eight years ago that athletes will often hide uh, lesser but still nagging injuries from the sports medicine staff. They don't want to be taken off the field. They want to get as many playing minutes as they possibly can. They don't want to be held out of practice knowing that that might not allow them to play that next week. So they told us, if you find an injury or if you suspect an injury, you have to let us know about it right away. We have to be able to help these athletes treat it, make sure that we're putting out the healthiest athletes onto the field as, a, as, a, as possible. So, again, we also want those athletes to have confidence in us and be able to give us information that they might think is private, but you have to weigh those those uh, those uh, judgments on whether or not this is something that needs to go higher up the chain in sports medicine or something that you can watch for a day or two to make sure it doesn't uh, accelerate. So pulling back to this hierarchy or the, the sports medicine team, we talked about some of the ways to collaborate effectively. Uh, do you have some thoughts on ways or have you seen ways in which massage therapists tend to make mistakes when collaborating in a healthcare team? I think the biggest mistake is to assume that whatever they know in terms of skill level is applicable at this level. They don't ask enough questions about when is the right time to practice X, Y, or Z technique or discipline, or if I have a goal in performing a technique, for, for instance, to improve pelvic mobility. Is that something structurally and functionally that the sports medicine team thinks is important for this athlete at this time? So really not asking the, the right, the right a question at the right time is something that most massage therapists need to learn. That They really have to talk more, ask more, find out more, learn more, and really explore what the boundaries of our uh, professional skill is in terms of how does that coincide with everyone else on the team's goals? 
And these athletes, uh, again, I'm with FSU from the beginning of August till the end of December. But the sports medicine team is there with them every day of the year that they're at the school. They know much more about these athletes than I do. Uh, only after four years of working with FSU, finally did they bring us in on rehabilitation. We were there early on just for recovery. They would give us two afternoons a week or two evenings a week, I'm sorry, to work with these athletes, usually the day after the game and the middle of the week. Within two years, that accelerated to three days a week. And about four years ago, it accelerated to even more time to apply our techniques with athletes recovering from injuries and or from surgery. Um, so we're now we have a more we have a more advanced way of working with these athletes, but only because we gain the trust of the sports medicine team that's there with them every day. So you initially talked about how you have a different approach to applying manual therapy in a sports context than say it has traditionally been applied. So originally it was more Swedish based, and you bring in more of a neuromuscular release. I'm, I'm bringing in more structural integration, more of the, the myofascial therapy techniques that I practice with athletes comes directly out of parts of the 10 sessions that Ida Rolf created some 60 years ago. So if I'm, if I'm doing um, work on the lateral line of the body, I have them sidelined. I'm doing the same types of things that I would do in the session three that first works on sideline work with every, every individual that goes through structural body work. If I'm working on the lower leg, the knees, calves, ankles, and feet, I'm using the techniques that are practiced in the second session of structural integration, which is a 90-minute session for knees, calves, ankles, and feet, deeply working with everything from the retinaculum to the anterior compartment to the knee capsule itself, deep work with the soleus and gastrocnemius, a lot of work on the Achilles, and then a lot of dorsal and plantar surface of the foot, and very deep work on the arches of the feet. Typically, that's not what you would do in sports massage in a typical session of recovery. This is more specific. This is deeper. So you have to know when to use parts of those techniques or parts of those protocols in terms of what that athlete is experiencing. A, a good example, we have one of the top runners in the NFL, probably one of the best runners that today is playing for the Atlanta Falcons. His name is Devontae Freeman. He played at FSU. And the second year we were working with him, he came in asking, can you do deeper work on my ankles? And when we asked why, he said that he's had three broken ankles, two on one leg, the other on the other, all in high school that never received any treatment. And he feels when he wakes up in the morning that he has the ankles of an 80-year-old man. Here's one of the top athletes on the team, one of the fastest runners on the team, and he feels restricted by his ankles that have a lot of scar tissue, a lot of... Um, I guess, uh, lack of mobility, to say it uh, kindly, very little dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. So I have to go to the sports uh, sports trainer, the athletic trainer, and say, is it all right if we do deeper work on his ankles? Absolutely, he says, go ahead and do it, whatever he can handle. We start working more specifically from a structural mode on his ankles, his lower leg, his foot, his, his uh, arches. He ends up having the best season any runner in a, at uh, Florida State has ever had. He gets drafted in the first round by the Atlanta Falcons, and now four years later, he's one of the top runners. And he still receives treatment two to three times a week from therapists that we've trained who live in, in uh, Atlanta. My goal in creating this XPE uh, sports uh, combine camp uh, team is to have massage therapists all over the country in every NFL 
the city. So I can refer our athletes, whether they're from Florida State or from XPE, to, the, to that type of therapy that they use during the combine or during their time at FSU, during their uh, time with the uh, with uh, the NFL. It's interesting. The first time I read about an athlete receiving what I thought was defined as structural body work was in 1992 uh, in a Sports Illustrated article about Roger Craig, the great running back from San Francisco. And there was a great article about him at the end of his career about how he kept healthy throughout his whole career, no injuries, never missed a game, an amazing athlete, one of the best runners the NFL has ever had. And he talked about these three bodywork sessions every week during the season and two a week during the offseason. And when he described them, it sounded just like either deep myofascial therapy or structural bodywork. And that's big in San Francisco. Ida Rolf used to, did her initial training at the Esteban, not too far, and a lot of Rolfers and other people in structural bodywork live in that area on the West Coast, not too far from you, obviously. And um, so when I saw that, I said, well, this has got to be the plan that I use for our athletes either here or later on when we started working with the Olympics. So that really inspired me in 92 to see that Sports Illustrated was willing to write an article and include this information about deep body work. Hmm. Uh, so that, that really inspired me to think bigger than just how do we use this for the average person, but how can we use structural body work for every active athlete, no matter what the what the uh, what the the, the uh, sport is. So these massage therapists, they come in. These six massage therapists, they work for a week. They train with you, and they leave having gained a lot of knowledge and experience working with these high caliber athletes. Uh, how does it then transfer translate for them? What do they What do they do with well, that? What I tell them is, no matter where you live, even if it's not in an NFL city, there's going to be athletes who are training there at the high level. Find out what groups those are, whether it's triathlon groups, whether it's CrossFit, whether it's bicycling groups, whether it's a swim club, whatever it is, find out either who the director is or if they have a sports medicine compartment, find out who who heads up that sports medicine team. It could be a, a high school. It could be a college. It could be anything. And let me start, start it off by getting an email letter to the head of sports medicine or to the head of that organization, letting them know who you are, what our work is. We'll send a copy of the article that was written in ABMP a couple of years ago called The Razor's Edge about the program we have at XPE. Let them know that you're available to come in, even to volunteer for a few weeks so that your skills can be assessed by that organization as to whether or not it would fit with what their overall goals are. That's helped a lot of them get either um, part-time work to full-time work or at least independent contractor work with universities, with high schools, with some professional teams, even at the minor league. We have one young woman uh, up in Ohio that is working with both a minor league hockey team and a minor league baseball team, owned by the same man. And that man decided, the owner decided he wanted to have a session from her before he made a decision whether to spend any money on this. And from that session decided this would be good for his athlete. Hmm. So do you find that the massage therapists that come work with you tend to find success in seeking out sports massage opportunities? About two-thirds of them already had a pretty good successful practice before they came to study with you. Maybe we're adding um, the final layer or one of the better layers of them working with athletes. Many of them were already well-skilled. I typically go for two-thirds of that of that number every week, whether it's six or five, usually about two thirds of them who have good experience, have, have a solid practice. But I like to bring in another third 
of people who are new in the field, who have a strong desire, really want to move in this uh, field, but don't know how yet. And this training might give them the confidence to really step forward in their own community. One young man, I, 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 I again, I'm, I'm uh, I've, I've told people I won't use names. We had a young man come to us from the Rio Grande Valley, had been out of massage school only for one year, but living in a reasonably isolated area in terms of major cities, it was a couple of hours from San Antonio, that was the closest major city, and decided he wanted to stay home and make this work. So he contacted a local high schools, he contacted the community college, he tried to volunteer for as many events as he could just to get known, and then he found out that Michael Johnson, one of the top MMA fighters, was training in his area for an upcoming fight in Las Vegas. He went to the campsite where Michael was uh, training, walked in and said, I've got a form of body work that I think will help you train better. Michael let him do a session on him. This was a little over a year ago. And now he has flown anywhere where Michael is going to have a fight the week before the fight to work with Michael leading up to that fight. And Michael has introduced him to many other MMA uh, many other uh, MMA athletes. I didn't do anything to make that happen. He had to make, I didn't write any letters, didn't send any emails, didn't send the article out to anybody. He made it happen. But for him, it was the best thing he could have done for a person who was new in the field and yet has all the energy and uh, confidence in the world. Hmm. So when you're training these massage therapists, uh, you're obviously, you're relying on the properties and function of fascia. Uh, since you're working with structural integration. Can you describe the theory and approach in which you train your therapists? Uh, the approach is that we want to understand the multiple layerings of fascia. Most people think of deep tissue work as needing to go deep every moment of the session, only working with the deeper intrinsic layer of musculature and the deep investing fascia. We teach them that the most important layer of fascia in the body is what some call deep fascia or axial fascia. It's one millimeter deeper than the superficial fascia, the loose areolar fascia, just underneath the dermis. So this is still the outer wrapping. The densest layer of fascia in the human body is the outermost dense fibrous fascia. Some call it deep fascia. Some call it axial fascia. In the leg, it would be uh, uh, the fascia lata and the curl fascia, the lower leg, and the trunk. The most important layer is the thoracolumbar fascia, which, unlike the aponeurosis, surrounds the whole body from back to a front, uh, comes off the, uh, as uh, uh, I, I teach them about the evolution of fascia being embryonic. It's the first soft tissue in the body to form out of the embryonic spinal cord. It forms the shape of the body. It joins together at the front line of the body, forming the linea alba, and that that outer layer is still the most important layer. So we teach them a strategy to first work to release as much tension in the outermost dense fibrous fascia, and then layer by layer to go deeper into the epimesiums, the fascia that wraps muscles, to the paramesiums, the fascia that wraps motor units inside the muscles, and to work with ligaments at the same time. For, I'll give you a good example. We teach a technique working on the sacrotuberous ligament that we think is one of the most important things that we can do for any athletes, especially large mesomorphic explosive athletes. Uh, that sacrotubus ligament is the strongest, thickest, longest ligament in the human body. Uh, it is seen by many of the top anatomists in the world as being the center point of all movement, that all movement from the legs and the upper body come into that area. If you know anything about it, it forms both a lateral line of the sacrum. It connects 
the upper sacrum to the ilium at the PSIS. Below, the major part of it connects the lower part of the sacrum to the ischial tuberosity. So it's at the same, at, at its more distal attachment site, it's at the same site as the upper hamstrings. And for some athletes, especially great jumpers, the biceps femoris, the largest of the three hamstrings, bypasses the ischial tuberosity and merges right into this ligament. So the sacred tuberous ligament becomes incredibly important. It covers the sacrum. Everything from above and below harnesses into it. And one of the top uh, clinical anatomists in the world says it's the source tendon for the deepest muscles of the spine, including the multipedi. Now, this ligament is well known by some groups in medicine, not as much studied by others, but we found with these athletes, if we can release tension in that ligament, they run better the next day, their stride is both higher and longer the next day, and if we sustain this over eight weeks, doing this two or three times every week, they feel as limber and as open through the hips. And by the way, the term open hips in the NFL is huge. They have a lot of athletes who come who have all these skills but have what they call closed hips. They're unable to move through the pelvic region. The iliofemoral joint is not as mobile. Um, the sacrum doesn't work independently as much as it should. Therefore, their whole pelvis is locked, and that means that the lumbar spine is also in a shortened, locked uh, position. So working with this ligament regularly changes all of that. Hmm. All right, well, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit, although it's fascinating. I do want to drop in about some other subjects. You, for quite some time, you were the vice president of the Massage Therapy Foundation. I did a podcast interview with Doug Nelson, uh, oh, and we talked a little bit about about the Massage Therapy Foundation, but I'm wondering if you can speak a little to the importance of the organization and the role it plays in our industry. I'd be happy to. Now, that started in 1992 which was at the end of two years that I had been the chair of the National Certification Council. So from 1990 to 92, a group of nine of us were asked by the American Massage Therapy Association to develop national certification, to get the exam written, to form a, 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 a national certification board with uh, bylaws. And it took two and a half years from uh, February of 90 till May of 92 to make that happen. At the national education meeting that spring of 92 that we went to that meeting to announce that we had finalized national certification, we have the exam ready for a May, a month away from when we had this a national meeting in Minneapolis. Bob King, who was the president of the AMK, made the announcement that we were starting the next link in the professional development of massage therapy. Certification was the first, and then was developing an arm that would create dollars for research, educational scholarships, and community outreach projects. The third was going to be the accreditation of schools, what developed into Compton. That came in 94-95. I had gone to that meeting having promised my wife that I would not be involved in a national volunteer venture like I had for two and a half years with national certification. Took a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of time away from home all of it non-paid, but worthwhile. And I go to that meeting and I hear Bob King talk about the Research Foundation or the, Amer the Massage Therapy Foundation. And I immediately went to him and to uh, Grace Chan, who became the first president of it, and said, I want to be involved. Tell me what I can do. And they said, George, you would be perfect for being our vice president for fundraising. I did not have experience in the research end of it, but I could talk to people and somehow get them to donate 
So I did that for several years and became a member of the board of trustees of the foundation through the end of, I think, 2000 for about eight years. And to me, that was, that was more heartfelt. That was something that I felt, yes, the profession needed national certification, but the world needs to understand that its generosity can support not just massage therapy research, but educational scholarships for, for those who want to study massage but don't have the money to do it, or community outreach grants that would help communities really receive the benefits of massage uh, who could not afford it in any other way. Hmm. And so to, to me, that's, that's the most important part. Now, the COMTA, which is the accreditation of schools, came, by, came around a couple of years later, and having a school, we were one of the first schools to get uh, accredited by uh, COMTA, and to me, that was sort of like the third and final piece that really gave us a sense of professional development uh, that we had all been, been uh, yearning for through the 70s and 80s. Well, before we, we wrap this up, uh, do you have a favorite quote that you use when teaching massage? Several, but, but the one that I rely on the most is to make sure that you're not forcing your way in but the athlete or the client is allowing you into their body. So let their body take you in. The other quote is to go deeper, go slow, not to be in a hurry. Even if it takes multiple, not just minutes, but multiple sessions to get to that level or that depth uh, of intrinsic tissue that you believe needs to be worked with, don't be in a hurry to get there. Go slow. The other one is to educate, educate, educate. I always I, I use that statement more than I use any, that we have to teach um, our clients about both anatomy, the physiology, and how structure and function fit together. Hmm. So cool. lots of quotes. Uh, there, there's, there's one that I remember the other day that I've said probably thousands of times that one of our big roles in sports, sports body work is to create space. So our job is to create space within that body, hmm. to give it a sense of openness. I tell them that the five L's of body work are lightness, looseness, largeness, um, um, light, loose, large, long, and lively. And so lively is the last one? Lively is the last one. It's a higher sense of energy. And what about large? What, how does that play in? That's the creating space, to open the body up so they feel bigger inside, that things aren't constrained. Hmm. There's a statement in a lot of functional exercise programs, the tissues are either locked long or locked short. And those areas of the body that are locked short are more compact, they're more dense. We have to open them up. We have to create space within those tissues so there's more mobility. So that largeness is a sense of the body opening. Lightness and looseness, clients should feel immediately when they get off the table. Uh, sometimes length is also there. They feel longer. One of the things that Ida Rolf taught in her structural work is work half of the body, right or left side first. Have the client stand up, move around, do some basic movement patterns and or exercises to compare how that side feels compared to the side that hasn't been worked with. And that's when people will tell you that I feel lighter, looser, larger, longer, and or livelier. The first two, uh, loose and light, are the two most common things that we hear of people saying. But that experience midway through the session really gets the client to understand what's happening to them when they're on the table. Hmm. All right, George. And if people want to learn more about you and the work you do, whether it's the training down with XPE Sports or, or otherwise, how can they learn more about you? 
Uh, the two websites that I have are coreinstitute.com, C-O-R-E institute.com. That's about my uh, general uh, work in myofascial therapy, structural integration, and some of the sports body work. But for the XPE core sports body work mentorship, we have a website that's xpecorebodywork.com. And that explains the whole program that we're doing in Boca Raton with Tony Bellani at XPE Sports. Like I said, we, we uh, run that in the winter, in January and February, and then two more weeks in the summer working with, like I said, athletes from the NFL who are getting ready to go back to preseason. Well, thank you so much for joining me, George. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Haley. Thank you very much. All right. All right. Take care. You too. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the episode, please go ahead and review it on iTunes. And if you have any questions that you had wished I had asked or topics you want me to cover in the future, please visit the website at www.housethepressure.com where you can send me an email and hopefully I can include it. Until next time, be good and be well.